millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport. We're back with the most compelling, the most controversial, and the most awe-inspiring riders and races in cycling history. We're socially distanced from the Eurosport studio for this episode of Recycle, so please forgive us if this recording isn't quite up to the same high standard as you're used to. Nevertheless, the quality of writing remains from Felix Lowe, and this podcast is still narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. Last time out, we revisited the day Henri and Francis Pellissier became the first and only brothers to occupy the top two steps of the podium at Paris-Roubaix. The Pellissiers rode against a backdrop of renewal and recovery after the First World War, and against an entire peloton that had conspired against them. This time round, we're on the same parkours, rolling with Johan Museu, 18 years after the Belgian legend won his third cobblestone at the famously rain-sodden centenary edition of the Hell of the North. By then a veteran, Museo made history with his hat-trick, while youngster Tom Bonin came of age among the muddy mayhem, despite being booed by his own fans. And yes, it was also the last time it rained on Roubaix. After Matt Heyman's retirement in 2019, no riders in the current pro peloton have experienced a wet Paris-Roubaix firsthand. The Australian, who famously won the race at his 15th attempt in 2016, was the last man standing in that crazy 2002 edition. But greasy cobbles in northern France have not exactly been unheard of since. It has rained on several other one-day races featuring the Pave, while Dutchman Lars Bohm memorably won a rain-soaked Stage 5 of the 2014 Tour de France that took in seven cobbled segments usually used in Paris-Roubaix, the same stage that saw Vincenzo Nibali motoring across the cobbles towards his yellow jersey. But on that wet July day in 2014, the weather prompted tour organisers to remove two segments, reducing the stage to featuring only around 15 kilometres of cobbles, a far cry from the 51 kilometres used earlier that spring in Roubaix. It didn't even include the brutal Arnberg Trench, despite finishing in Wallaire, a cobblestone's throw from the legendary sector cutting through the woods. As Heyman, who finished that apocalyptic 2002 edition outside the time limit, told Rouleur magazine in 2017, in the rain, an already famous race becomes even more famous. Museo's third and final roar at Roubaix in 2002 came after an incredible 41km solo break, four years after his career was almost brought to an end in similarly demanding conditions. It was accompanied by a breakthrough performance from the pick of the Flandrian Lion Cubs, the then little-known neo-pro Bonin. 14 years later, 
Heyman would deny Bonin a record fifth win at Roubaix. Does a race that's synonymous with suffering and sadism really need rain on top of the kitchen sink savagery it throws at its participants? It already features a peloton prepared to jostle and barge their way at speeds in excess of 60 kilometers per hour towards a narrow strip of cobbled barbarity better suited to ox carts from a previous century. In 2014, a dozen years after Museo's final win, the Inner Ring blog posted an entry entitled The Paris-Roubaix Rain Dance, which looked into the meteorological conundrum of this particular region of northern France. In spring, the region's average rainfall is 144 millimetres. Lille, the nearest city to Roubaix, is equal 13th among 118 places in France for the number of rainy days per year. It is, in short, one of France's wettest places. So, why doesn't it rain for Paris-Roubaix? asked the inner ring. Is it just a statistical oddity, a rarity for it to be dry year after year on this one day? Is it climate change? No, it's all perfectly normal. Yes, Roubaix is so far north, it's almost Belgian. And yes, it's one of the rainiest regions all year round, but it has a surprisingly dry spring. Quite simply, March and April happen to be the driest time of the year in that particular neck of the woods. There has been some rain on Roubaix since 2002. Ten years on, when Bonin won his record-equaling fourth crown, it drizzled. But it was enough only to dampen the soil, which meant not only no mud, but none of the eye-catching dust clouds that make for much of the spectacle and difficulty. It's worth adding that rain on the cobbles doesn't necessarily guarantee carnage. When Bohm won his stage of the 2014 tour, there were some spills, but only one withdrawal. Chris Froome, who had cracked his wrist the previous day and then fell again before reaching the cobbles. When the tour returned to the cobbles in 2018, in a nail-biting stage featuring 22 kilometres of parve won by a resurgent John Degenkolb in Roubaix, there were frequent crashes despite the hot weather, with Froome again going down in a dramatic pile-up. But it's the wet editions of Paris-Roubaix that stick in the mind. Who can forget the brutal 1994 race when only 48 riders finished? In that edition, the treacherous conditions were exacerbated by snowfall the previous day as the muddy Moldovan André Schmiel took the spoils. It was complete mayhem, like a war zone, says Peter Cousins, author of The Monuments, who was covering the race in 94 for the first time. He feels that the absence of rain at Roubaix has left something of a void for spectators and riders alike. I remember a rider coming in saying he'd crashed four times and adding, if only I'd crashed three times, I might have won. That was the average. Riders aren't doing that anymore. The race doesn't seem as chaotic as it used to be when you think back to the years Bernardino or Sean Kelly won in the wet. That was the way Roubaix was, playing out under the April showers. For it not to have rained in 18 years is pretty mind-boggling. All the talk in the lead-up to the 2002 race was of a battle between Belgians Johan Museu and Peter van Pietergem, the Italian Andrea Taffy and the USA's George Hincapi. All four riders had finished in the top four in Flanders a week earlier, where Taffy had come out on top. But Hincapi's third-place finish in the midweek Gent-Wevelgem made him the informed man for Paris-Roubaix. A year earlier, in another sodden edition, the US postal rider had finished fourth behind a domo clean sweep of the podium, led by Cervais Carnarvon, and with Museo settling for second. For his part, Museo was low on morale. Losing to his rival Taffy in the Ronda had left him very disappointed. 
Annoyed at missing the opportunity of crowning his illustrious career with a record-breaking fourth Flanders win, the Belgian even threatened to quit the sport rather than race for a third Roubaix title. One rider no one considered a threat, however, was neo-pro Bonin. Although Museo had ridden with a 21-year-old in the break in the recent classic Haribo and was further impressed by him at Umloop Het Volk in Kerner Brussels Kerner. I haven't seen too many neo-pros do that yet, he said. Too bad he's not in my team. While most of his rivals fretted about tyre pressure and the weather forecast, the highly superstitious Museo had gone through his usual ritual ahead of the race. As he would later tell the Belgian publication Sport magazine, On Thursday, after training, I filled two bidons with holy water at the St. Godelieve Abbey in Gestel, which I poured over my wheels on Sunday morning. Johann's superstition went very far, his soigneur Dirk Nachtigala elaborated. On Saturday evening, I had to disinfect and grease his new bib shorts. He also slept that night in the same room of the modest castle just outside Compiègne, where he stayed every year. Johan also wore his favourite undershirt, in which he had already won several World Cup races, although he had to make the name of the old clothing sponsor illegible with a black marker. Then, of course, he had his paternoster from Padre Pio, the talisman given to him by a supporter in 1992. However, when the rosary went missing before the start at Roubaix, Museo became agitated. We searched the entire bus with a number of riders, said his Domo Farm Freets teammate Wilfred Kretzkens. Fortunately, we found the paternoster under a seat. It had fallen out of Johan's pocket. Barely five minutes later, the starting signal sounded. Deceptively, the sun shone over the 190 riders at the start. But it didn't last long. Over the next seven hours, only 41 riders would make it to the Roubaix velodrome inside the time limit. The looming grey clouds had already psychologically destroyed many of the participants. Speaking to Rolleur in 2017 about the wet and windy forecast, Hincapi said, Basically, a lot of guys can't handle that. They wake up, they see the weather, and mentally, they're done. You're racing against half the peloton instead of the whole one. Fourth in Flanders and third in Gent-Wevelgem, Hincapi was leading the US Postal Service team that day with the young Bonin, one of his domestiques. Bonin was told to get in the day's break on the advice of his director sportif, Dirk de Mol who himself won Roubaix in 1988 on a rare day the breakaway went all the way to the velodrome. Under cool spring sun, Bonin was one of the 33 riders who edged clear of the pack an hour into the race after a strong northeast wind and heavy drizzle saw several echelons form. Also present in the move were Museo's teammates Max van Heyswick and Enrico Cassani, Cofidis road captain Nico Matan, a fresh-faced Tommy Vokler, Lotto domestique Hans de Klerk, and veteran breakaway specialist Jackie Duron, the surprise winner of the Tour of Flanders a decade earlier. Very much an unknown quantity, Bonin was given a free hand in the break, where he wasn't expected to do too much work. His fellow escapees didn't recognise him, presuming he was a foil for his teammate Hincapi, who was back in the bunch with his US postal henchman Floyd Landis and Antonio Cruz. Two hours into the race, before the first cobblestone section at Toiville, drizzle turned to rain. An already cold and windy day was now marked by heavy showers and scummy, slippery pave. The roads would soon become a mud bath. It's hard to paint an exact picture of the barbarity that day without skipping over countless case studies which also merit mention. But naming every victim and describing every crash would take longer than replaying the entire race itself. It was on entering the Toiville section of cobbles and slamming on the brakes because of a pile-up 
that Britain's Max Chiandri, his back wheel parallel to his handlebars, realised things were, in his own words, going to be a totally different ballgame. South Africa's Robbie Hunter also made the breakaway. He too recalled the day for Rilleur. Everybody's done a cobbled section with a bit of water here or there, he says, but that really doesn't compare to riding a full Paris-Roubaix on sectors of wet cobbles that are covered in mud and scattered with oil from vehicles that have bust their sumps. Unless you've done a Roubaix like that, you can't fathom how bad it really can be. It didn't help Hunter that his Mapai team, along with the Lotto team, were racing on new tyres from Michelin that they had tested only in dry conditions. They were really he recalled. Bonin later compared riding on the muddy pave to riding on cobblestones with a layer of soap on top. What he did have going for him, however, was his cyclocross background, which made him more accustomed to the conditions than many other riders. But as Bonin told Rilleur, in such conditions, your biggest enemy is not always your own shortcomings, but those of your rivals. On those sectors in the rain, you don't just depend on your skills, but on the 50 guys in front of you as well. That's the most dangerous part. Falling becomes part and parcel of racing on a day like this, as Heyman, riding his third Roubaix that year, told Rilleur, you have to be prepared to fall in a wet Roubaix. Maybe not once, not twice, a fair few times. It's super dangerous, slippery, and it all happens pretty quickly. Despite the presence of their teammate Bonin in the break, Landis and Cruz had led the chase for US Postal back in the pack. After the first 10 sectors of cobbles and heading into the Arenberg, the break had been whittled down to 12 riders, including Bonin, with a lead of more than four minutes. Matan, still present in the move, was particularly impressed by his young compatriot. It was as if he was already riding his 10th Paris-Roubaix. He knew where to ride on each sector, and he did so with ease. Domo's Cassani attacked from the break. Behind, his team leader Museo upped the tempo in the Arenberg the site of his horrific crash in 1998, where a subsequent infection from the mud seeping into his shattered kneecap led to gangrene and, almost, amputation. When Museo came back to win his second Paris-Roubaix in the year 2000, he pointed to his knee as he crossed the finish line in the velodrome, ahead of the chasing pack. Even the guy who triumphed in the last rainy Roubaix had a horror story from an earlier wet one, says cycling journalist Shane Stokes for whom the fixation of fans with rain and cobbles borders on the irresponsibly perverse. I'm against the notion of riders being gladiators and that there should be crashes to enjoy in a race, he says. Even if a wet edition is more spectacular to watch, it's important to keep the riders in mind, not to forget that they're human beings as well. Between Museo's last two Roubaix wins, in the hellish 2001 edition, Frenchman Philippe Gaumont also crashed heavily on slippery cobbles in the treacherous Arenberg, fracturing his femur, yet another reminder of the appalling challenges when the heavens open. That Museo used the Arenberg as a launch pad in 2002 was a sign of the fearless champion he was. Sticking with the Belgian surge were his teammate Carnarvon, Hinkapi, Chiandri, the German Stefan Weissermann, and the Dane Lars Michelson, who, absurd as it sounds, was riding Roubaix as part of his stag weekend celebrations, with six friends following in an accredited vehicle behind him. In a boost for Museo, his big rival Taffy had been laid low by a fever and was well off the pace. The select chase group that formed around Museo was regularly bolstered by riders dropping back from the break, which was just seven strong as it passed through the second feed zone. On the five-star sector of Mons-en-Pevelet, 
Museo's group merged with the frontmen just as the Belgian veteran was flexing his muscles. He attacked at Merigny in Sector 8, around 45 kilometres from the finish. I know it's a long way to go alone, said Museo, but that's tactics. I didn't know the day before that I'd go from so far out. If you don't feel okay, you wait until the finale. But I felt great that day. I was 100% sure I was the best. Hincapi had tried to react, but later admitted that his legs were just rubber. Meanwhile, de Klerk, who had been in the break, skidded in oil, crashed and broke his wrist, although he didn't know he had done so at the time. I rode the last 45 kilometres of Paris-Roubaix with a broken wrist, he told Rilleur. At first, you just ride on adrenaline, but you become tired and it is so slippery. On the final Parve section, I could only hold on to the bars with my right hand. Bonin, the race's youngest rider, was caught short by Museo's attack, his wheels skidding in oil before a gap of 15 seconds quickly opened up. He rode in pursuit with teammate Hincapi, prompting Domo DS Wilfred Peters to cry in Museo's ear, Don't stop! Two are chasing! He omitted the fact that they were both from US Postal for fear of damaging his rider's morale. With snot streaking through the mud on his pained face, Museo extended his lead to one minute over the chasers, whom French television commentators erroneously described as the two Americans in pursuit. To add to their woes, the US postal pair were even forced to dodge an official car that had got stuck in the mud ahead of them. When one of the US postal riders crashed into a ditch in Sector 4 at Camphine on Pavelli, Bonin's father, Andre, watching on TV, screamed, Tom! at his screen. I couldn't tell the difference between them, he later told Sport magazine. It was not his son who hit the deck, however, but an exhausted Hingapi. After Museo's attack, I felt the energy tank slowly drain, said Hincapi, reflecting on the race ten years later. In the beginning, I floated over the cobblestones, but I made a beginner's mistake by dressing too lightly in the cold weather and eating too little. I became cold, and when I slipped, I could barely respond. The remaining 18 kilometres were the longest in my career. I still don't know how I managed to finish sixth. Never had I been so completely bonked. Empty. Dead. Hincapi told Rilleur. Bonin was momentarily caught in two minds. Slow down and wait for Hincapi, or continue the chase on his compatriot up ahead. After some dithering, perhaps his only fault that day, the youngster chose the latter option. Maybe I should have done that sooner, because I'd been thinking for a while that George had trouble staying on my wheel, said Bonin. But the Belgian found himself booed and doused in beer by his own supporters on the side of the road. French television were not the only ones who had failed to identify the correct nationality of the rider chasing Museo in US postal colours. Up ahead, the lone leader's red lips were the only thing of colour as Museo hit the race's third and final five-star cobble section at the Carrefour de l'Arbre. Behind, Bonin had been joined by Weissman, who had crashed earlier in the day before the cobbles and required a change of bike and shoes. But it was a fight for second place. Museo's gap continued to grow, and the leader was preoccupied not by doubts of the victory, but by how he would celebrate that victory. The grizzled 36-year-old had contemplated walking over the finish line and symbolically hanging up his bike before announcing his retirement. But I wasn't ready for it yet, he told Sport magazine. So, in a fraction of a second, I decided to put ten fingers in the air, one for each World Cup victory. Museo's huge winning margin of 3 minutes and 4 seconds over Weissman has not been bettered since.
This is a dream, said the tearful Museo. Two years ago, I almost lost my leg. After all I've gone through, there's nothing more beautiful than winning Paris-Roubaix. Victory saw the line of Flanders draw level with other post-war three-time Roubaix winners, the Italian Francesco Moser and fellow Belgians Eddie Merckx and Rick Van Looy. Only compatriot Roger de Vlaaminck had won more. His record would be levelled not by Museo, but by the rider who had that day emerged from the gloom to lay down a career-transforming marker. Forced to ride the last kilometres on a flat front tyre, Bonin settled for third place behind Weissermann. It was the first time a neo-pro had been on the podium of a major one-day race since Lance Armstrong in the 1992 World Championships. It was also two places higher than Roger de Vlaaminck, Mr Roubaix himself, on his debut. The thing that really stands out about the race more than Museo's win and the wet weather is Tom Bonin, because nobody had heard much about him before that day, says Peter Cousins. He was supposed to be working for Hincapie, but he got in the break, the leaders came across, it went pear-shaped for Hincapie, but Bonin just kept on going. Bonin later told Rilleur that his debut Paris-Roubaix had been one of the most fun days I've ever had on my bike, because I was only 21 and nobody knew who I was. Of all the riders in the velodrome after the race, it was Bonin who apparently looked the sprightliest. I saw him walking as fresh as a fowl, while great gentlemen like Hincapie and Eric Zabel stumbled around like zombies, said Weissermann's telecom manager, Walter Golderfruit. There was no doubting Bonin's class that day, as Museo recalls. I knew he was a big talent. I'd followed him since he was an amateur. But it's not always that a big talent can come over and win something. I saw immediately that he could follow me, and I told him on the podium that he would be the new king of the classics. So, what happened next? Three years later, in 2005, Bonin won his first Paris-Roubaix, symbolically pipping his former teammate Hincapie and the Spaniard Juan Antonio Flescher a week after winning the Tour of Flanders. Despite facing fierce competition from the Swiss powerhouse Fabian Cancellara, who beat Bonin one year later, the Belgian went on to win the Hell of the North on three more occasions, in 2008, 2009 and 2012 the latter as part of another famous Roubaix-Flanders double. After years off the boil, Bonin looks set to put light between him and de Vlaaminck with an unparalleled fifth win in 2016, only to be denied by an inspired Heyman in one of the most thrilling, not to mention one of the driest, editions in recent memory. His cold shower in the decaying installations of the Roubaix velodrome after that mud bath in 2002 was the first and last time I have washed there, according to Bonin. Museo would go on to finish 33rd in 2003, as compatriot Van Pietergum took the spoils. But the 38-year-old fared better in his final appearance in 2004, the year Sweden's Magnus Baxter took a surprise victory, when he finished 5th. That third and final Roubaix win would prove the final big scalp of Museo's career, with just four more wins coming before he hung up his cycling shoes. As for Lars Michelson, he recovered from a crash to finish fifth and give his friends something to celebrate other than his impending nuptials. I didn't realise how bad I looked afterwards, he told Rilleur. I had my shower, then went out in northern France for a nice dinner and a lot of Belgian beer with my stag do friends. Michelson's wedding day followed just two weeks later. The long wait for rain at Roubaix, however, continues. But is it wrong to wish for rain? 
It looks much more dramatic on a really wet day when everyone is suffering, says double Roubaix winner Sean Kelly. When you look back at the editions when it's so muddy that you don't know which teams the riders are on, that's what people want to see. Wet and muddy conditions, even if, from a rider's point of view, it's much more difficult and dangerous. To the fans, a horrible day makes much more spectacular viewing. Even Mathieu van der Poel, one of the rising stars of cycling, has joined the virtual rain dance, voicing his dismay that there hasn't been rain at Roubaix for so long and voicing his desire to ride a wet Roubaix with rain, mud and stones. But is all this clamour for the sodden and spectacular strictly necessary? Stokes doesn't think so. He sees cycling, and Paris-Roubaix in particular, as dangerous enough as it is. Rain at Roubaix will surely happen again, he says, but I find it quite unsettling seeing people on Twitter welcoming the notion that it might be wet. Some people almost seem to relish seeing crashes. But people are watching through the safety of television. They're so far back that they don't see the riders as human. Funnily enough, it's watching the race on television, and in particular dry editions of the race, when the pace is higher, where the true appreciation of Paris-Roubaix shines through, according to journalist Daniel Freib. I prefer it when it's hot and dusty because it's one of those races when the sense of speed can be quite vividly communicated through television pictures, he says. Paris-Roubaix feels, particularly when it's good weather, frantic from the start. I quite like that. Whereas when it's wet and mucky, it just feels like a slugfest and a war of attrition. That has its own appeal, but I don't lust for that. Cosins agrees. The author of The Monuments sees Paris-Roubaix as something of an anachronism. A throwback event of an extraordinary sporting endeavour akin to asking Rory McIlroy to play the British Open with hickory-shafted golf clubs or giving Novak Djokovic a wooden-headed racket to face Rafa Nadal. Whether it's wet or dry, it doesn't matter, says Cosins. It's still bloody hard either way. Whatever the weather, it's always going to be a thrill and unpredictable. To be honest, I'm not sure if the weather makes that much of a difference in terms of whether it's viewed as an epic race or not. It didn't rain when Matt Heyman won, and I look back at that as one of the greatest Paris-Roubaix performances ever, and one I'll probably remember for the rest of my life. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. You can find Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze, and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. And you can find Pete in glorious self-isolation pining for a beer garden. You can also follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, plus you can catch us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe, look after each other and join us for the next episode of Recycle when we're riding Le Redoute with Frank van den Brucker for what would turn out to be the pinnacle of the Belgian's troubled career, a performance of power and panache that delivered his 1999 Liège-Baston-Liège victory. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.